So I believe you are starting a new series called Kingdom Carriers. If you didn't, if you didn't yes. know. Yes. 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 You're like, are we? For, I don't know how many weeks you're going to learn about being kingdom carriers. So my job is to try and explain to you, well, what is the kingdom you're going to carry? And uh, I do, you know, teach normally like quite a few hours on the kingdom. <clears throat> so what I'm doing today is trying to summarize the whole kingdom message into one kind of dense talk. And you will get to have that lunch uh, at some point. <laughs> and as you know, uh, the kingdom of God is the theology of the vineyard around which we revolve, not only as a belief system, but as a practice as well. So it's very important to us. And it's important to us because the center of it is Jesus. And the kingdom of God was his mission and message that he came announcing and demonstrating. And so if you read the Gospels, you'll find he is talking about the kingdom more than any other subject, repeatedly. Just to show that, um, his inaugural preaching, he went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. That's how his ministry began. <clears throat> and then Matthew tells us he went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So the kingdom was both something he taught about and he did by healing sicknesses. The famous Beatitudes, where people think that's like the summary, the densest summary of all his teaching there in the middle, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then when he commissioned his disciples and said, go and be kingdom carriers, carry my message. It was very specific. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. As you go, preach this message, a very specific message. The kingdom of heaven is near. And then his parables, he taught lots of parables, and they were all explaining the kingdom. So like the parable of the sower and the seed, he says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And then he tells the parable. And then another parable explaining the kingdom of God. And then you find there's one place where we get the nearest thing to a definition of the kingdom. And that is in what I think should be called the kingdom prayer. We talk about the Lord's prayer, but really it's the kingdom prayer. And he says, pray this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we learn two things from this prayer. The first is the coming of the kingdom is an event. Because to pray for an event to come means it hasn't come yet. Pray for it to come. So some people talk about you know the kingdom as though it's to do with the sovereignty of God eternally over all of you know, the whole universe, and that's true, but that's not what Jesus was talking about here. He was talking about an event occurring in history where it would come. And then in Jewish uh, wisdom teaching, often you find the second line is an explanation of the previous line. So for the kingdom to come is for the will of God 
to be executed on earth as it is in heaven. And in fact, our English translations, the word kingdom of God is not the best translation. The Greek means the rule or reign of God. And the activity of God's rule and reign being executed on earth. So that is what Jesus is talking about. A time that is going to come where God will show up in history in an unprecedented way and he will have his way on earth as it is in heaven among, among mankind. So when he inaugurated his message, that first verse we looked at, he talked about the time being fulfilled. He said the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, in saying that, Jesus was referencing the centuries-old expectations of the people of Israel. When he stood up and said, that time, he didn't have to explain what that time was, because they had been longing for centuries for this time to come. And so, to understand that, we have to understand the history of Israel's growing expectation about the messianic age, the age when the kingdom of God would come. And when Jesus stood up to make that announcement, uh, he was speaking into a clear set of expectations. <clears throat> so how did that story develop? Well, it develops in three great steps in the Old Testament, three windows. And it begins with the story of the Exodus, which is the first time they said the kingdom came. And here was an, a, a, a nation of slaves, oppressed, and God comes and he intervenes in history in miraculous signs until eventually Israel is liberated from Egypt and they are led by God into a new destiny. And at the climax, when they are dancing around across the sea and the enemy armies have been drowned, the end of their song is Yahweh, or the Lord, will reign forever and ever. In this act of liberating us, he has become our king. In fact, he has become a victorious king who has defeated our enemies and thereby has liberated us. He has become our liberator. And so that's what they understood in that first experience to be the kingdom of God. It is when God shows up in history to liberate his people from bondage. Then they get into the promised land and the whole story gets bigger because under David and Solomon, the Davidic monarchy, God now rules a nation for a few generations directly through a surrogate king, through a adopted son who is the king of Israel but he is the king under God the king and because he rules God rules and because God rules he rules he is anointed he is called the anointed one or the Messiah and so for a generation or two Israel lived in a golden age where they were prosperous they were wealthy they had peace they had shalom everything was going well uh they were tasting what it's like to live under the rule of God. And that became an unforgettable picture of what it's like when God rules. But then they blew it badly. 
they went off and started worshipping idols and foreign gods, and God warned them with prophets, and they wouldn't repent. And eventually, he sends them off into exile, ruled by the Babylonians and Medo-Persians, and they are in a dark night of despair. And in this dark night, the prophets begin to speak a new message. And they say, just as God came in the Exodus event and in the Davidic monarchy, he is going to come again. But the next time his kingdom comes, it will eclipse everything. You ain't seen nothing yet. It's going to be much bigger than you've ever hoped for. And so in the promise of the prophets, you get a really massive picture, especially in the prophet Isaiah, of a new world that is coming where God will terminate this world we live in and he will inaugurate a new world where humanity will be liberated from every form of bondage. The sick will be healed. Those bound in prison will be set free. Um, God will liberate humanity. In fact, even nature will be restored. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And everything that has gone wrong with humanity and this creation will be put right. And so it's a very massive expectation summarized in this phrase the day, the time when God's kingdom will come and nothing less than that is what Jesus was telling them to pray for pray, oh father let your kingdom come let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and so for Jesus to stand up and say that day has come, now is the time was really a massive statement and uh, created a whole lot of excitement so between the end of the Old Testament where these great expectations are created, there are then hundreds of years where God doesn't seem to do anything. And they are just ruled relentlessly by foreign kings and things get worse. And then suddenly a wild man appears in the wilderness, hairy fellow, eating locusts and honey and saying, the time has come. And then he introduces Jesus. So with that whole story in the background, it's difficult to exaggerate the sense of drama as Jesus' ministry begins. And as Jesus' ministry begins, the first key word that ex explains it is the word immediately. If you read Mark's gospel, depending on your translation, at once. Everything happens at once. Jesus goes into a synagogue and he preaches and at once a demon manifests and he drives it out. And the people are amazed. And then he goes to Peter's mother-in-law, and she is sick. And immediately he heals her. And then the whole village hears about that. And that very evening, they all come. And he heals all of them. And then he gets up the very next morning, and he says, let's get moving, because we've got to keep spreading this news. And, you know, it's like nothing has happened for 500 years. And in Mark chapter 1 and 2, everything has happened. Suddenly, Jesus is the arrival of God's rule. And so that leads to the next word, which is the word authority, which is the key word used to describe the ministry of Jesus. And that's really saying, in him the kingdom has come, because the rule of God is God exercising his authority on earth. And Jesus operates with the authority of God's rule. He is, let's say, the embodiment of God ruling on earth like it is in heaven. And so he has authority in teaching. They say we've never heard, heard teaching like this. He teaches with authority. He has authority when he summons people. He 
tells Peter and James and John, leave your businesses, come and follow me. And they drop everything and they obey. He has authority over demons. He just speaks a command to them and they leave. The Jewish rabbis used to have long rituals trying to get demons out of people. They just couldn't believe Jesus would just say, go. And sometimes hundreds of demons would leave. He had authority over sin. So the paralyzed man that he healed, he said, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Stand up and walk. And the man stands up and walks, showing that his sins have been pardoned. And Jesus isn't just talking about, you know, the last few sins you did in the last few weeks. He's talking about your eternal pardon before God the judge. I give it to you now. And he has a wonderful habit of wrecking funeral services. And the Jews used to do loud wailing and weeping at their funeral services. And Jesus comes up and, of course, the whole thing changes to celebration. Various stories of people being raised from the dead. He even has authority over nature. Uh, he looks at a storm and he just says, down. And the storm, storm obeys. And, of course, the, at that point, the disciples asked an obvious question that they hadn't been figuring out. They said, who are you? <laughs> you know, this is, not, this is like quite extraordinary. And by the way, with all these acts of authority, all sorts of prophecies, particularly in Isaiah, he's just going tick, 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 I'm doing all of it. But then the third word we need to use is the word mystery. Because it doesn't seem that Jesus wanted to fulfill or was fulfilling all the expectations Israel had, and a key expectation they had, was national political liberation from Roman government and being taxed to death and all of that. And, and the, the Messiah was going to be a military leader who would liberate people. And Jesus didn't seem to be interested in that. And so eventually John the Baptist, who's the one who introduced him, now in prison about to have his head chopped off, and we should give him some slack. I would also start to waver, sends messengers to Jesus and says, very clear question, are you the one? You don't really seem to be the one. And, and Jesus, by the way, answers, go and tell John the Baptist what you see and hear. The lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor, justice is coming to the poor. And he's saying, look, tick, 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 tick. But then he says, but blessed are those who are not stumbled at me. In other words, he's realizing that he's not quite fitting the expectations completely. And he says to his disciples, to you I will reveal the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Uh, showing that he understood it was a little bit mysterious. So that then leads us to the way Jesus used to teach about the kingdom. And he taught about it all the time, so there's lots of his teaching about it. And if you look at all his teaching, actually, you get quite confused. So first of all, a lot of his teaching is the kingdom of God is still to come in the future at the end of history where God will finally come. So he has this long sermon about how there will be wars and rumors of wars and false prophets and false Christs. And then there's going to be a prolonged period of terrible trial and tribulation. And then after that, suddenly, like the lightning lights up the sky, the Son of Man will come, a figure predicted to be the judge of mankind. And he will sit on his throne, and he will judge humanity, 
and separate them like sheep and goats, and some will go to eternal life, and some will go to eternal death, and that will be the coming of the kingdom. And the same, the book of Revelation talks about this end of the world, apocalyptic coming of the kingdom. So from all of that, the kingdom of God seems to be a, a, a still-to-come future end-of-the-world event. But then a whole lot of statements Jesus makes. He says, no, no, listen, it's here right now. If I, by the finger of God, drive out demons, and the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, since I took over from John, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and breaking into history. And in his signs and wonders and multiplying of food and ministering to the poor and all that, look at it, it's here. But then, just to confuse us a little bit more, he says, no, wait a bit, it's not really here, it's near. And the word he used often was near. And that is linked to statements like this, he said to his disciples who were young men, he said, before you die, you'll see it come. It'll come in this generation. Or, I send you on a mission throughout Israel, and before you have finished preaching to all the towns and villages of Israel, it will come. So it's not here yet, but it's going to come in this generation. And the word near he uses, if you go all into the complications of its meaning, it gives the kind of connotation of a woman in labor, and the labor pains are advanced, but the baby hasn't come yet. Or there's a gathering storm, and you can hear the thunder, and you can smell the rain, but it hasn't fallen yet. It's that penultimate moment. So you could say these statements mean he, he said that history is pregnant with the any-minute arrival of the kingdom of God, but it hasn't quite arrived. It's very imminent. And then just to really confuse us, he said, look, it's actually been delayed. So a whole lot of parables, one about a nobleman who gives gifts to his servants and he goes on a long journey. After a long time, he comes back. And Luke tells us, Jesus told that parable because some people thought the kingdom of heaven was going to appear at once. Actually, because Jesus had told them that. And that wasn't going to appear at once. It's been delayed. So how mysterious is the kingdom? Now, the next sentence I will utter you have to listen. Okay. This is the sentence. The mystery of the kingdom is this. That it is always simultaneously present, near, delayed, and future. Always simultaneously. So most events in human experience and history can't be both present and future at the same time. But you know, God can do things that defy us mysteriously. And so uh, theologians try to put it all together and this diagram I'm going to show you now is one of the best ways to understand how this mysterious kingdom of God can be present and future all at the same time. So the Jewish worldview at the time was a view of history in two epochs, two ages. This present age, from creation, moving through history, promise and fulfillment in the history of God's dealing with his people, to a, a climax of history called the eschatos, which means the end. The day of judgment, where God will intervene 
in a final way. And then that will be followed by a new world lived at a much higher level of, of reality. So the book of Revelation talks about the day when the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And the former things have passed away and God has made everything new. And there's no more sickness, no more pain, no more death. And God is, is our God and we are his people and the covenant is restored and there's a new heaven and a new earth. See? And Handel's Messiah goes off. <laughs> King of kings. If you can, I won't try and sing it. And that was the Jewish worldview. What they could never have conceived of is that somehow mysteriously all the realities of the end of history in that final act of God could appear in advance in the message and ministry of Jesus, in his crucifixion, in his resurrection, in his ascension, which unleashed the power of Pentecost. And all of those events, to use the language of the book of Hebrews, are the powers of the coming age. What you think is only possible in the final day of judgment, if Jesus is around, is possible now. And so a mysterious reality is set up, which is the reality in which we Christians live, which the world around us does, doesn't live in. They live in a one-dimensional world. But we live in a world where before this world has ended, for us, the new world has already begun. And so Jesus says, if you believe in me, you have eternal life. And the word eternal life means the life, the quality of life of the coming ages. But you've got it now. If you believe in me, you have already passed from death to life. So we have met the end of history, personally, in finding Jesus and in experiencing Pentecost. So Bible teachers and theologians, they try to coin phrases that can kind of put it all together to give the essence of it. Um, the writer that John Wimber, who founded the Vineyard, was influenced by, wrote a book called The Presence of the Future. And I think that's quite a good word. The future has arrived in the present in Jesus. A phrase that is very common in the Vineyard is the already and the not yet. So if you ask the question, Jesus, is the kingdom of God here already? Yes, it is. Sickness healed, demons driven out, poor fed, signs and wonders. And then you say, Jesus, is the kingdom of God not yet here? The answer is yes, it's not yet here. It's still coming. And we live in this reality where both are true at the same time. Or if you want to really wax theological... Enacted, inaugurated eschatology. That's what the theologians talk about. It's actually not that complicated. Eschatology means the teaching about the end, the eschatos, the end of the world. And the end of the world was inaugurated already in a mysterious way in the ministry of Jesus. The end of the world started to be rolled out. And not just rolled out in a theory of parables and things, but in the enactment of signs and wonders. It is here present. You can see it. You can taste it. It's present. So once you've understood this model, if you like, that comes right out of the message and ministry of Jesus, it gives you like a new set of spectacles where you see everything through this model, particularly the whole life and ministry of Jesus. So the kingdom comes in his proclamation 
and demonstration. And the kingdom also comes in his cross. The cross is an event of the end of the world. So he says, when I am lifted up, he says, now will be the day of the judgment of this world. And if you are in me, you will be in the day of judgment, basically. So all of humanity can choose which day of judgment we want to show up for. If we believe in Jesus and place our trust in him, then we have had our day of judgment. If we don't, we will face our day of judgment. But in the day of judgment we've already been in, we were found guilty, we were sentenced, we were killed, and in his resurrection we popped up again. And we are home free, never to be judged again, because for us the day of judgment is a past event. We have passed from death to life. Man, isn't that liberating? Wow, that's why we can be confident my sins are forgiven. Because the cross is the day of judgment occurring in advance in Jesus. But the most exciting one is his bodily resurrection. Is the nearest thing in the whole Bible story to what the kingdom of God looks like. Because Jesus came manifesting a body that was a real body with flesh and bones that could eat fish and could be embraced. And yet he could appear in the middle of a room that was locked and then disappear in front of their eyes. A body transcending the normal limitations of bodies we've got. And most important, a body that is the prototype of the bodies he will give us in the coming world. And the older I get, the more excited I become <laughs> about, because it'll be me like I was at the peak of life, which you should have seen. <laughs> uh, and never growing old again. And being able to walk through walls and things and having this transcendent liberty. And, and so the, where you can literally see what the future kingdom of God looks like is in the risen body of Jesus. And then Pentecost, when they asked Peter, what is this? This power that has come on people, they're speaking in tongues, they're falling down, over, overwhelmed by the power of God. He said, this fulfills the prophecy of Joel in the last days. It's about the end of the world outpouring of the Spirit of God that will like harvest all of humanity. But that has become available now. And so the book of Hebrews talks about receiving the Holy Spirit as receiving the powers of the coming age. And you know, the coming age is where God's power will come on us so powerfully that every molecule and cell in my body will instantly, in a twinkling of an eye, be translated into that resurrected body which is going to be like a very big shot of God's power. But what we get now is little small doses. It's like having a 12-volt battery instead of a 220-volt system, you know. And you, you just get a little bit of it. And you know, sometimes when we get just that little bit of it, we're overwhelmed. And we fall down and we cry and we laugh and, and, and we have an ecstasy and joy. And if that's just a foretaste, what is the ultimate coming like? when I will be finally transformed, see. So the understanding of Pentecost as the powers of the coming age is a massive thing. So once you've got this, as I said, it becomes spectacles you wear, and everything about what the Christian life is like, what our mission is, is uh, rolls out from there. And so there are a whole lot of implications that follow.
from this understanding of the kingdom. The first very profound is that if the end of the world, literally the final day of judgment, has arrived in Jesus, then Jesus is God himself arriving. And so Jesus is God. So the divinity of Christ really properly understood is out of the fact that in him the kingdom of God came, the rule of God himself came. Also, from that moment, the, the last days began. So Peter says, what is this? This is the last days. Hebrews 1, many in various ways God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. So we have been living in the last days since Jesus' ministry began and Pentecost came. And we are moving towards the last of the last days until we get to the last day. <laughs> we're living in the end and we're moving towards the end of the end until we get to the very end. And we are always living in the end of the world reality. Which means that the barrier between this world we live in and that world that is coming is like open for us. And that's the symbol of when the veil was torn in the temple when Jesus died. Because the, the Holy of Holies symbolized seeing God face to face. It says one day we will see him face to face. The outer court was where they experienced God through symbols like bread and wine and stuff like that. But since Jesus has died and risen, you never know when suddenly in a normal moment, it's transformed and the end of the world powers arrive. So I've, I've seen that quite a lot in, in my experience. Uh, it's really fun when it happens. You're in a meeting and you're having a hymn and a thing, you know, and a coffee. It's just church as normal. Nothing really is going to happen today. And then you pray, come Holy Spirit. And people are overwhelmed by God and Three hours later, you have to carry them into the cars because they are slammed or zapped. And people have visions and people vibrate like they've been struck by electricity or lightning. And uh, they fly through the air and think, wow, this is a dangerous place. All that happened is that barrier just is permeable. At any moment can become the last moment the realities of the last moment can suddenly arrive. So Christians who understand the kingdom of God live in a state of continual expectation. You just never know when God's going to show up. And he often does. Then, when he does, literally anything can happen. Because Isaiah predicted the sick will be healed, the dead will be raised, uh, God's glory will come, the nations will be united, there will be a new Jerusalem, a new heaven and a new earth, a new international community of God's people. There will be unbelievable joy everywhere. The mountains will be bouncing up and down to the beat of our music. And, you know, all of that is the package of the kingdom. And Jesus started showing all of that is possible. So whenever the kingdom turns up, you just never know what's going to happen. And that means that revivals are actually kingdom of God events. If Pentecost was the coming of the kingdom and revivals are fresh Pentecosts, then revivals are the repeated intervention of the kingdom of God. And I have a theory 
that if you follow church history, the gaps between revivals are getting narrower and narrower. And I think that means, as we live in the last days, and we move to the last of the last days, more and more of the last days happens. Makes sense. So, you know, I am quite ancient, but in my little life, I have lived through four great moves of the Holy Spirit. I was sort of born into the Jesus people revival when I was a young Christian. Hundreds of thousands of people converted. Hippies with flowers in their hair. And then the charismatic renewal. Power of God moving through the Anglican church, Methodist church. Then the whole Wimber, Lonnie Frisbee thing. I mean, it was extraordinary, the power that was manifest. And then we thought it had all gone away. And then 94, 97, the Toronto thing. I was mortified, you know, driving down here. A, a young couple, uh, Tom and Claire, drove me down. And I said, where were you when Toronto was happening? And he said, I was one year old. But for me, it's like it happened yesterday. And you see, in the long expanse of history, it means probably the next revival is just around the corner. And so a Christian worldview is a worldview of God's interventions in history for the redemption of mankind, hotting up, not slowing down, until we arrive at the very end. This is, the, therefore, the framework for understanding world missions. What are we doing? We are carriers of the kingdom. This is a good introduction, right? We are carriers of the kingdom. And what are we doing? We are God's agents subversively to get his planet back, to restore all of humanity. And the world is our playground. And every tribe and nation and tongue is our target. And nobody is safe before us. This is our mission. This is our... So we... we if you understand the kingdom of God, God wants to restore all of humanity and all of creation, you know, you must have a big mission vision if you understand the kingdom of God. Wales is too small for you guys. <laughs> Cardiff is definitely too small for you guys. But you've got to start there. Um, this is the way we should understand the mysterious nature of the Christian life. If the kingdom of God is an already not yet reality, and we are born into it, what does that make us? Makes us already not yet people. So we are much more mysterious and odd, frankly, than people who haven't yet found Jesus. Because two worlds are colliding inside of us. We're still living in this world. We know that when we look at our bank balance, don't we, or whatever. We're still living in this world. And we read about Brexit. We know we're still living in this world. But we're already living in the next world. And we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And Christians who don't understand that they're living in like a war zone sometimes wonder, why am I sometimes so triumphant and then sometimes so disappointed in myself? Well, just join the war. You're in a war zone. And, and don't be surprised by that. Every Christian is living in this strange reality. But the fact is the kingdom of God that has broken into history overpowers the sorry world that is going to pass away. And so the new you inside of you is standing up more and more in you until the old you has totally disappeared. And so you are moving from triumph into final triumph. So in terms of the kingdom, you've, you're saved. You are being saved. 
and you will be saved. You've got it. You're getting it. And one day you're going to finally get it. That's the Christian life. And then this is the only way you can understand healing. Healing is the most wonderful and frustrating thing you could ever be into. So when we pray for sick people, why is it that they can get healed? Because the kingdom of God has come. It's in the commission. Go and proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Do it. But then why is it sometimes when we pray for sick people they don't get healed? Because the kingdom of God has not yet come. And so that helps us to not get into a guilt thing. I didn't pray properly or I, I'm the person being prayed for or my attitude wasn't right or whatever. No, no, no. Or I didn't have enough faith. No, look, it works. Definitely works. But it doesn't always work. Cool, we're in the kingdom. What we mustn't do is then do a cop-out. Because we know it doesn't always work, we don't do it. No, no, we press in because we know it is available to us in this mysterious availability of the powers of the coming age. And then this is the framework for understanding the church's relationship with the world, issues of justice and injustice and social activism. So people can go off in two extremes where they either lose the already or they lose the not yet. So some people have the, a resignation approach. This world is so bad. It's so corrupt. It's only going to come right when Jesus comes. It's going to burn. And we're going to be raptured. We're going to leave. Zap. So the only thing we must do is win people for Jesus and get them to hang on until the end as well. Well, that's not what the kingdom of God is, is about. Because if you read the history of revivals, revivals have massively affected nations for centuries. And the whole social fabric has been transformed when revivals have come. You read the history of Wesley and Whitfield and the, what that did to your country. It's massive. But then if you say, oh, well, the kingdom of God teaching means we can take over the local city and municipality and England is going to become a Christian nation under us. You're living a little bit in a cuckoo land because evil is not going to finally end until Jesus comes. But we make a really good shot at transforming society because where we go... We are agents of God renewing the whole of humanity. And we can make a big impact, as long as we're realistic, that it's in the tension of the already and the not yet. And then finally, this is the framework for understanding Christian stewardship of the environment. See, if the coming kingdom is a new heaven and a new earth, where all the devastation that mankind has done to the environment is finally restored by God, and if that future kingdom has arrived already in Jesus, surely it means we must, at least we must be green Christians. I don't mean join the green party. I mean be people who are agents of God's renewing of the environment happening already because the kingdom of God has come already. And so uh, Christians who don't have a sense of calling to the environment have not understood the kingdom of God. 
It's the same calling as we have to witness to society and do social transformation and, and confront injustice. It's the same calling we have to pray for sick people. It's the same calling we have to tell people, your life can be transformed. All of it is available because the kingdom of God has come. And we are carriers of the kingdom. And so, in the next few weeks, as your wonderful preachers keep preaching about it, become carriers of the kingdom of God. That's it. Why don't you stand up? One of the things Derek said is that in any moment we're expectant that the kingdom of God can break in. I think sometimes the danger is that we don't have that expectation. And so why don't we just take a moment where we invite the Spirit of God and we say, come and move amongst us. <laughs>